This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. About sola scriptura. As we heard this morning, these five solas of the Reformation were... They weren't created by the Reformers. In fact, the Reformers weren't using these slogans. Uh, They weren't talking about it in this manner. These sprang up almost spontaneously throughout the Reformation time period as uh, agreement of, yes, this is what we're holding to. These are the things we're fighting for. And so, sola scriptura, scripture alone commands belief in action. Now, other things can inform belief in action, tradition, uh, the wisdom of others, uh, men's teachings. That informs belief in action, but only Scripture can command and enforce belief in action. Now, that's the foundation, and we're returning to the foundation this year, but the other solas build upon that foundation because in the Word of God, once it was translated into the language of the people, Martin Luther translating it to German, for example. Now this great doctrine of salvation that is by grace alone, sola gratia in the Latin, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, this is the means by which a sinner can be made right with a holy God. And this is good news. And it produces a heart of worship. So then we say soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now, I do find it a bit ironic that the five solas are in Latin, and the whole battle was to get the Bible out of Latin. (laughs) But all of these reformers knew Latin, and they were dealing in the Latin, but this is actually at the heart of what I want to talk about this evening. And by the way, I'm greatly indebted to one of my mentors, Dr. Michael Haken, who uh, introduced me to a lot of this material regarding William Tyndale that we're going to talk about tonight. So uh, footnote is already there. So uh, I'm not plagiarizing him. I'm greatly indebted to him. Now, in 1994, which doesn't seem that long ago to me because it was just the year before I got married, but I know that's a little ways now, the British Library paid the equivalent of well over $2 million for a book. And Dr. Brian Lang, who was the chief executive at the library at the time, he said this is certainly the most important book and acquisition in our 240-year history. What book is this? That's right, someone knows. It's a copy of the New Testament, and not just any copy. It's one of only two in existence. And the other one is missing 71 pages. It's located at St. Paul's Cathedral, London. This is a copy of Tyndale's New Testament, which was printed in the German town of Worms. You've heard of the Diet of Worms? Um, That's not like a new health rage. You know, that's not like a new craze. Like, I'm going to go on a Diet of Worms. Uh, A diet was a gathering of leaders to have a council in German, and the city was Varms. It's spelled Worms in our English, but it's pronounced Varms. It was printed there on the press of Peter Schufer in 1526, and it's the Tyndale New Testament. Now, this New Testament was so important because it was the first 
New Testament to be translated into our language, English. And it wasn't the first. Wycliffe translated from the Latin, but this was the first translated from the Greek, from the original language of the New Testament. And I'll mention Wycliffe a little bit later, but I want to read to you from the preface of this English translation. This is William Tyndale. To the reader, give diligence, reader, I exhort thee, that thou come with a pure mind, and as Scripture saith, with a single eye, unto the words of health and of eternal life, by the which, if we repent and believe them, we are born anew, created afresh, and enjoy the fruits of the blood of Christ. Mark the plain and manifest places of the Scriptures, and in doubtful places, See, they, thou add no interpretation contrary to them, but as Paul saith, let all be conformable and agreeing to the faith. Count it as a thing not having his full shape, but as it were born before his time, even as a thing begun rather than finished. Now, this was just the New Testament. He was going to attempt to translate all of the Old Testament. In fact, he didn't know a lick of Hebrew, and he went and taught himself Hebrew so that he could translate the Old Testament. And he was working on that, and I don't want to tell you the end of the story quite yet but he says this was beginning and therefore desiring them that are learned and able to remember their duty and to help thereunto and to bestow unto the edifying of Christ's body which is the congregation of them that believe those gifts which they've received of God for the same purpose the grace that cometh of Christ be with them that love him so here he is like, I'm going to get this into the language of the people, and those who preach it are going to be able to minister to the people, and here is where salvation is. Well, why was this so important to William Tyndale? Well, because he was convinced of the Reformation commitment to sola scriptura. And again, a definition of sola scriptura, what I mean by it is that Scripture possesses the supreme right to command belief in action. As Tony said this morning, there may be other delegated authorities, but it is the ultimate authority. It is not judged by anyone. It stands in judgment over everyone. The Bible is the sole authority regarding what we're to believe and how we're to live. That's what sola scriptura means. Why? Because scripture has the power and the ability to enforce belief and action, and even Scripture itself is a derived authority because it comes from the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, a king may not be able to present his ideas in person to everyone in his kingdom. And so he can, however, put his will into writing, and the con content of that writing, since it consists of his actual desires, will carry the same authority as if he presented his ideas in person. And what Tony just mentioned about Martin Luther, uh, John Piper mentioning Martin Luther, that we were given a book. We weren't given an oral tradition that can be mixed up, that can be changed over time. We were given a book. And, and I'm going to mention it here in a moment. In the providence of God, in the 1500s, there was a return to original sources. There was a creation of new technology, the printing press, that led to the proliferation of books and reading and literacy, the Renaissance and humanism and the ideas that were floating around in the air were the providential 
things of the Lord to bring about the Reformation in the church. And so, I want to first turn to Scripture, and I, I, I got to sneak some Scripture in because I don't want it just to be a church history lecture. If you want just a church history lecture, come take a class. I teach church history at, at Cornerstone. You come take all my classes. It'll be fun. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul tells Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood... You've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, the Middle Ages could be a fulfillment of that verse. This turning away from the truth. The Reformation didn't happen in a vacuum. In fact, there were five major developments in the late Middle Ages that built this bonfire. It was like a carefully built bonfire waiting to be lit. I remember as a youth pastor, we were camping up uh, on the American River up there by gold country, uh, Coloma, and one of my students, him and his brother, built this campfire and took like two hours. These sticks were perfect. It was like this perfect thing, and then they poured white fuel on it. <laughs> as if it wasn't enough, as if it needed that, right? They lit that thing off, and that fire shot 50 feet in the air, and we thought we were going to burn down gold country, <laughs> trying to stomp that thing out, right? This is, this is what happened on the eve of the Reformation. You see, the religious situation, uh, to give you a, a really quick 1,000-year snapshot of what happened was uh, Latin was the language of the people in the 400s. And when Jerome wrote his Latin Vulgate, his translation, Vulgate is the Latin word for common. It was the common Latin. Uh, our English word vulgar comes from it, meaning it's just common. So the whole point Jerome was trying to do was get the language, it, it, get the Bible into the language of the people in the 400s. And over time, Due to high illiteracy, the spread of uh, the Roman Empire and its subsequent collapse, and Latin no longer being the language of the people, but becoming the language of the church, this emphasis away from the preaching of the word to the, the not the preached word in the scriptures, but the visual word in the Eucharist. So they still believed they were preaching the gospel by preaching the body and blood of Jesus in the elements. And of course, then the superstition rose because there was, they weren't understanding the words they were saying. In fact, have you ever heard the phrase hocus pocus? That comes from communion. The phrase in Latin is hoc est corpus meum. And you could imagine people sitting in the audience, hey, what did the priest do? I don't know, he said some hocus pocus. And it went from... <laughs> bread and juice and wine and turned into the body and blood of Jesus. 
See, the religious situation was dominated, first of all, by rank superstition. Not only the problem with the service being in Latin, not the language of the people, but the worship of relics, right? Finding, you know, there would be these items that would become holy places, and you'd visit there, and there'd be relics like Christ's breath in a bottle, or his tears in a bottle, or his blood in a bottle, splinters of the cross, hairs of the Virgin Mary that she tore out at the foot of the cross, the index finger of doubting Thomas. There's some other crazier ones I'm not going to mention to you. (laughs) Why? Because it had become a superstitious religion that saw holiness in objects rather than what the Holy Spirit produces through the Word in the lives of His people. It was also, second, dominated by semi-Pelagianism. Well, that's a fancy word. Well, Pelagius was a heretic who was condemned as a heretic uh, in the early church. But what semi-Pelagianism taught is that, hey, you know what? You do the best that you can on the basis of your natural ability, and God's going to give you an infusion of grace as a reward to make up your lack so that you can have eternal life. Well, this means man initiates his salvation and it led to the sacrament within the sacramental system in the Roman church at the time, the emphasis being on love and not faith. You just do good and love and you're, you're set. Rather than salvation by grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone, that was Luther's whole concern in his 95 Theses. Also, the church had this issue of authoritarianism. The supreme example being the power of the papacy at the time. For example, Boniface VIII in 1302 issued his Unum Sanctum, which was a papal bull, which said, it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Isn't that incredible? So in order for you to be saved, you submit to the Pope. 1302, from then on, that was the fight. And corruption In fact, during this time in the late Middle Ages, right up to the eve of the Reformation, the popes were virtually nothing but secular princes. They were seducing women. They were waging war. They were motivated by worldly interests and amusements. And it is not rated PG if you read the church histories. So what was the response? Well, prior to the Reformation, there were movements calling for Reform, and very often these movements would end up being labeled heretics. And two that I just want to briefly mention, first is John Wycliffe, who lived from 1330 to 1384. His followers were called the Lollards, which was a mocking term. But Wycliffe, in 1377, he wrote a treatise on the truth of Holy Scripture, proclaiming the infallibility of the Bible. Every word was eternally true. The Bible was the work of God, must be taken in all of its parts without qualification. The Bible was to be understood not necessarily by professors and prelates, but by the individual. And a Christian reading it prayerfully with the help of the Holy Spirit could understand it. That sounds like common sense to us. But at the time, it was way out of bounds. Well, what he does is he takes the Latin, and he translates the whole Bible into English. And as a result, in 1407, a law was passed forbidding, under pain of excommunication, any translation of the Scripture into English or even to be read. 
Wycliffe's followers were known as Lollards. It was a low German word for a babbler. And um, from 1407 on, it was illegal for the Bible to be translated into English, which is why Tyndale did his translations on the run. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. The second one I want to mention, Jan Hus lived from 1372 to 1415. He was a Czech priest. He had come into contact with Wycliffe's writings. In fact, he even plagiarized Wycliffe. His work on the church was a straight-up plagiarism. I think he probably thought copyright meant it's all right to copy. <laughs> but us, for him, though, authority of Scripture ranks supreme. It was, quote, the profound study of Scripture which transformed him into an earnest reformer. In fact, John 539 was the verse he ran to you search the scriptures it was a consistent refrain in his writings and so this was what was going on in the church now we can see why looking back we can see why Huss and Wycliffe that this didn't light the powder keg this didn't send the reformation on there were some other elements that needed to happen one was the renaissance Important to us, the Renaissance is lectures and lectures of material, but important to us is the slogan, ad fontes, or back to the fount, back to the sources. Scripture, then for us, quote, was not to be equated with the text of the Vulgate, the Latin version, but with the Old and New Testaments in their original languages as ascertained from the best manuscripts available. And it's no surprise that the early reformers, all of them except Martin Luther, were Renaissance scholars. And so they had bought into this idea of the stream is purest at its source. You go back to the source. And for Calvin and Luther and the reformers, Zwingli and Huss and Wycliffe and Tyndale, they all said, we got to go back to the Hebrew and Greek. We can't be content with the Latin. Technological changes were important. The invention of the printing press. For example, between 1517, the year that Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Church, and 1520, just three years, Luther's 30 publications sold well over 300,000 copies. That would be a hit even today. Unlike Wycliffe, Lutheranism was from the first the child of the printed book. Luther described printing as God's highest and extremest act of grace whereby the business of the gospel is driven forward. In fact, Luther's own writings constitute a third of the German books printed in the first four decades of the 16th century. And his German Bible, 430 editions of the whole Bible or parts of it appeared during his lifetime. 430 editions of it. Luther would have been another Wycliffe were it not for the printing press. That's the argument of G.R. Elton. That's the difference. They were having to handwrite Wycliffe's Bible to make copies. Well, there's also another element, which is the growth of nationalism, this rise of strong hereditary monarchies that, as a result, led to strong nationalistic feelings in countries. The, kind of the modern idea of, of pride in our country, that arose at the same time. And what it did was German princes began to embrace Protestantism, not necessarily out of personal religious convictions, 
Uh, some of them did, but some of them saw it as an opportunity to rid their states of the foreign influence of the papacy. Uh, the Anglican Church is created for that reason. I'll mention King Henry VIII in a moment. Now, back to this idea of sola scriptura and the authority of scriptures. You see, the root of idolatry, the reformers believed, was the rejection of Christ's authority and submitting to another authority that could not save and could not deliver. For example, Martin Luther Scripture alone is the true Lord and Master of all writings and doctrine on earth. If that's not granted, what is Scripture good for? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's books and human teachers. Likewise, John Calvin describes Scripture as, quote, the pure Word of God, free from every stain or defect, the certain and unerring rule. In fact, for Calvin, the Bible is an inerring, infallible book. And unlike all other books, Scripture alone is a sure and certain guide for the believer's life and thinking. That sounds just like what we said, sola scriptura. He assumed that Scripture, rightly interpreted, will not be found to make false assertions. And this was the basic presupposition of all of his exegesis, and he was a preacher by trade, preaching day in and day out. Now, Calvin... When he looked at the Scriptures, he believed that the, the cause of the Reformation was when men studied the Scriptures, they were brought face to face with the differences between what Calvin called Rome's delusive pretensions and the order presented by the Lord. But Calvin didn't believe the Scriptures were an end in themselves. They, he didn't believe they were the ultimate cause of the Reformation. According to him and his institutes, there had to be more than an intellectual understanding of what the Bible said. There had to be submission to and acceptance of the divine revelation set forth in it. Now, this could only happen by a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible was the means whereby, Calvin says, God revealed his will to men, but it was the Spirit who made this revelation efficacious. The words of Scripture, Calvin writes, will not be given complete acknowledgement in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inner witness of the Spirit. Now, now what is that? I mean, that is, that is the illumination of Scripture. That is God's sovereignty in drawing us in salvation and opening our eyes to see the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of Scripture. Hearing uh, the gospel and the good news of who Christ is and what He's done and our eyes being open to that. For us today, this is extremely important when we think about our own piety, our own spirituality. You see, if the Word is the instrument by which the Lord dispenses the illumination of His Spirit to believers, Calvin writes in his Institutes, then that means no genuine piety or spirituality can take place apart from the Word. This is where we must go to become like Jesus. This is where we must go to commune with the triune God. It's kind of simple, right? We speak to the triune God in prayer, and He speaks to us, the Father, through His Son, by the Spirit, in the Word of God. This is why Warfield would say over and over, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. And I have some pastor friends who stole that, and I thought growing up, they were the ones who came up with that clever phrase. 
When scripture speaks, God speaks. And who knows, maybe Warfield stole it from someone else. I don't know, but that's good, right? When scripture speaks, God speaks. And from the, think about what the reformers were saying then. You either have God's words or man's words. Now, whose words do you want to listen to for salvation? God's words or man's words? That makes it pretty simple. Now, the rejection of the authority of Scripture becomes a rejection then of the authority of Christ. This is what Jesus says in John 12, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive me, my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Isn't that incredible? You see, so loyalty to our Savior, it's, it's measured by loyalty to his word. Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? Submission to the authority of Scripture then is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. And this is what the reformers were fighting for. Because in the corporate gathering on Sundays, as they came to worship God, what they were seeing was not the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus as revealed by the Scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit. What they were seeing was superstitious works of men and a system that would not save and not deliver. Instead, it would damn their soul because it was adding works to salvation. Well, back to Tyndale. In studying the Greek New Testament, he came to the realization that nothing was going to change with regard to the morals of the Roman church, his own church that he loved, until there was a return to New Testament doctrine. So Tyndale said, I perceived by experience how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the Scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. Now, nothing illustrates this in the life of Tyndale more than a conversation that took place. He was a, uh, Tyndale was a, serving as a tutor, a private tutor and a chaplain at the house of a nobleman named Sir John Walsh. And Sir John Walsh was a really hospitable man. He always had people over. He was hosting guests for dinner, and on this occasion, a high-ranking cleric was present. And Tyndale was outlining the problems with the Church of Rome in the light of God's Word. I imagine it was great dinner conversation. The cleric, whose high-ranking responds by saying he would rather have the Pope's laws than those of the Word of God. Now, of course, his response, his tone, reveals he's profoundly ignorant of God's Word and what it contains. Because surely he would know how precious it is. Like we heard this morning out of Psalm 19, more to be desired than honey from the honeycomb. In keeping them, there's great reward. Well, Tyndale's amazed. Jaw drops on the floor at the disdain for the Scriptures. And so here's his response. It's a great quote. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou dost. He did it in the Old English even. Thou dost. 
Mic drop. So good, in fact, was Tyndall's translation of the New Testament when it came out that even though it was criticized, you know, the, the Roman church got all of their experts to say how bad the translation was. It was a fantastic translation. When the King James Version, the translators came to translate this new translation of the King James that King James commissioned at the start of the 17th century, they went back to Tyndale's English translation, and you know how much they used of it? 90%. 90% of it, and we could go through all of the English sayings that have come into our language because of Tyndale's translation, but we don't have time. Now, what are some benefits of sola scriptura? Well, what we've already heard. First, we're able to distinguish the voice of God and reject alternatives. This is because in the Scriptures, we recognize, as we heard in 2 Timothy 3.16, the voice of the Father. All Scripture is God-breathed. We hear in the Scriptures the voice of our Savior, the Good Shepherd. Isn't that what He said in John 10? Verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. We hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. We could go to a ton of verses where all of the Old Testament quotes are put in the mouth of the, the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 3, as the Holy Spirit says, quoting the Psalms. So the voice of our triune God is heard in the Scriptures. And because of that, we're able to reject alternatives. Other voices that are crying for our attention, but they will not save and they will not deliver. They might demand our belief in action, but they have no power and no ability to create something in us, to make us like Jesus, to give us joy, to give us hope, to put off sin. There's no power in those voices. Second, we're able to depend upon God's word with complete trust. Now, I'm a Gen Xer, which means I hate authority just by the very... <laughs> by my existence, right? We, we Gen Xers, we defy authority. That's just what we do. Add to the fact I grew up in Vallejo and it's just a mess, right? Why in the world would authority be a good thing? Why would sola scriptura, that scripture demands belief in action and it has the authority to do so and I want to rail against that? Why is it? Well, because I'm a sinner, who needs a savior, right? I actually am saved by grace and Lord willing, I now rejoice in that submission to scripture. Why? Because God's word is proven trustworthy. You see, he's not an authoritarian like we think of authoritarians. He's not one who's capricious. He's not changing his mind. He's not saying something one day and, and, and something else another. He's not one who is wicked and evil with wrong motives no he gives us what is our best he gives us what is for human flourishing what what is for as we saw when we went through the pentateuch this summer shalom the way things ought to be and so we can trust the scriptures complete trust paul and acts told the ephesian elders i commend to you to God and to the word of His grace, 
which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the word that is precious that we ought to crave like newborn babes, the pure milk of the word. In it we see the great and precious promises of God our Father in heaven as revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Spirit does is He takes that Word and He shows us the glory of Christ. And 2 Corinthians 3 says He transforms us into that same image from one degree of glory to another so that we have communion with the triune God and we draw near to this God who is drawn near to us. It's what we were created for. It's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. This is why it was so important. Third, we can successfully and faithfully live in this culture and world. You see, it's not just about us. We have a message from this word, a message, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, of reconciliation. In fact, we have a moment. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians 5. I want you to see this. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And what has he given us? The ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us. What is it? The word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the five solas right there. You see, we have a message. And as priestly ambassadors, it's an act of worship to go to the world and say, be reconciled to God. And this message is a cross-centered message, isn't it, in verse 21? The sinlessness of the substitute. The imputation of our sin to Christ and the righteousness of God that's in Him that's by implication imputed to us. The great doctrine of justification by faith alone, which was the rediscovery of the Reformation, it was not invented there. Contrary to what some people are trying to argue, it was rediscovered. It was lost in the Middle Ages. I can prove it to you. Go read the epistle to Diognetus, which was a second century early church writing, and the doctrine of imputed penal substitutionary justification by faith alone is taught in that epistle to Diognetus. Or come take my class. <laughs> it's a great read. Now listen to Tyndale on justification. Why was this such a big deal to him? Listen to what he says. To believe that Christ died for us is to see our horrible damnation and how we were appointed unto eternal pains and to feel and to be sure that we are delivered there from through Christ in that we have power to hate our sins and to love God's commandments, all such repent, and have their hearts loosed out of captivity and bondage of sin 
and therefore justified through faith in Christ. Now further, what does he mean by this faith? Right faith is a thing wrought by the Holy, Spirit, Holy Ghost in us, which changes, changeth us. I'm going to have a hard time with the Old English. The Holy Ghost in us, which changeth us, turneth us into a new nature, and begetteth us anew in God, and maketh us sons of God. As thou readest in the first of John, and killeth the old Adam, and maketh us altogether new in the heart, mind, will, lust, and in all our affections and powers of the soul. The Holy Ghost ever accompanying her and ruling the heart. Faith is then a lively and steadfast trust in the favor of God, wherewith we commit ourselves altogether unto God, and that trust is so surely grounded and sticketh so fast in our hearts that a man would not once doubt of it, though he should die a thousand times therefore. And such trust wrought by the Holy Ghost through faith maketh a man glad, lusty, cheerful, and true-hearted unto God and unto all creatures, whereof willingly and without compulsion he is glad and ready to do good to every man, to do service to every man, to suffer all things, that God may be loved and praised which hath given him such grace so that it is impossible to separate good works from faith, even as it is impossible to separate heat and burning from fire. I think he knew what he was talking about. I think he had read his Bible once or twice. He might even have translated it. <laughs> well, so he had, done this new he had translated this New Testament. He had desired to translate the Old Testament. It was illegal for him to translate the Bible into the New Testament. So he was on the run. So in the 1530s, he was living in Antwerp. From there, he was smuggling uh, the scriptures across to English, England. It was easy to carry it out there. Going across, he had the printing presses there. They were loving it because they were mo making money hand over fist. The, the English government was burning Tyndale's Bibles. So they were buying them up. Bad model. They were buying them up, giving all the money back to the publishers to print more. And then they were burning them in the city centers. They're like, great, the printing press, we'll just roll these things out and print some more. On May 21st, 1535, he was hard at work on translating portions of the Old Testament when he was betrayed into the hands of Roman Catholic authorities. He was imprisoned in the infamous prison of Vilvord, six miles north of Brussels, and he was put on trial for heresy, specifically for being a Lutheran. <laughs> now he was not a Lutheran but you know these reformers were all lumped together and by 1535 Luther had you know all the bridges were burned with Rome by that point and the Lutheran church was quite strong he was found guilty Tyndale was he was condemned to be burned to death and I just want to close with two word pictures from his life that reveal the character of Tyndale the first comes from a letter that he wrote in prison in the autumn of 1535, writing to the governor of the prison, the Marquis of Bergen. Here's what Tyndale writes. I believe, right worshipful, that you are not ignorant of what's been determined concerning me. Therefore, I entreat your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I'm to remain here during the winter, you will request the procurer to be kind enough, a warmer coat also for that which I have is very thin. Also a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat's been worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt of mine if he'll be kind enough to send it. I've also with him leggings of thicker cloth for the putting on above. He also has warmer caps for wearing at night. 
I wish also his permission to have a candle in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may spend my time with that study. And in return, may you obtain your dearest wish, provided always it be consistent with the salvation of your soul. But if any other resolutions have been, uh, been come to concerning me before the conclusion of the winter, I shall be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory and grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. Isn't it incredible? He wasn't done. He's like, hey, you know, most of all, like I'm freezing to death. It's winter's coming and I'm freezing. Can you just get me some warm clothing and a candle? It's dark at night and lonely. But most of all, get me my Hebrew tools so that I could, he didn't say it, but you, we hear it, right? So that I could finish my translation. The other picture comes from the day of his death. Traditionally, October 6th, 1536. The executioner, in an act of mercy to Tyndale, strangled him before he lit the wood piled around him. That was what um, the executioners would do to be merciful so that they would not uh, scream and be in pain while they burned to death. And according to the John Fox, the martyrologist, Fox's Book of Martyrs, the last words that Tyndale was heard to utter were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. See, up to this point, King Henry VIII, he had been opposed to the free circulation of Tyndale's translation. He had broken with Rome by this point uh, over his desire to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. And uh, within a year, though, of Tyndale's death, the New Testament was being openly published in England. But it wasn't under his name. They weren't going to give him credit. But you know what? Tyndale wouldn't have been bothered by that that he wasn't getting the recognition. He had written in his work the parable of the wicked mammon in 1528 regarding his translation of the New Testament. He said, some man will ask peradventure. There's a word we need to add back to our English language, huh? Peradventure. I don't even know what that means exactly. Some man will ask peradventure why I take the labor to make this work inasmuch as they will burn it, seeing they burnt the gospel. I answer, in burning the New Testament, they did none other thing than what I looked for. No more shall they do if they burn me also. If it be God's will, it shall be so. Nevertheless, in translating the New Testament, I did my duty. What a duty that was. All of us who speak English, we have this inheritance. His translation was enshrined in the, New, in the King James Version, his New Testament, 90% of it lives on even to this day, used by many. And as David Daniel has recently noted in his biography of Tyndale, it was Tyndale that made the English people a people of the book. And the Puritans who came after that, and those who came to America as pilgrims, and so on and so forth. And so this Reformation, an idea of sola scriptura, it's incredibly important. Scripture alone commands belief in action. It tells us what to believe and how to live. And if it were from the hand of a tyrant, then it would be a heavy burden. But it's not. 
It's from the hand of a loving Father who so loved this fallen world He gave His Son. And this Son took on a human nature forever. And He lived a perfect life and He died as a substitute in our place so that we could be forgiven. And He's the Good Shepherd who said, come to Me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. In Me you will find rest for your soul. And we have a Spirit who's the great Comforter, the great Healer, the Lord and Giver of life who comes not just to be with us, but in the New Covenant He's in us. And He prays for us and He intercedes for us. And He conforms us into the image of His Son. And all of this we get because Scripture not only has the authority to command belief in action, it has the power and ability to bring it about. It is what changes us. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrows, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And all of us are laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And that's out of Hebrews 4. And it's not meant to scare us. Because you know what else He says in Hebrews 4? We have one who went ahead of us into the very throne room of God and so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. This is what the Reformers lived and died for was so that we could have this in our language. So that we could hear the voice of God. And we could know the Gospel of God. And we could become children of God and be with Him forever. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Father, thank You for this time. and We thank You for Your providences. We thank You that You brought about in the 16th century, this great reformation. But like the reformers said, we are not only reformed, we are always reforming. Semper reformanda. We want to constantly be returning to these truths, submitting ourselves to the Word of God, looking to it for what we're to believe and how we're to live, and not buy into the world's wisdom not give over to myths and human understanding. So Father, by Your Spirit, would You bring us back to Your Word? I thank You for Grace Bible Church and all of our sister churches that are committed to Your Word. Committed believing that the Gospel is the only thing that is going to transform lives. That the sufficiency of the Scriptures is really the sufficiency of Christ. He's the one who's able to save and deliver and all of the Scriptures speak of Him. Father, thank You for giving us Your Word. Oh, may it be sweeter to us than honey from the honeycomb. More to be desired than gold, even fine gold. May it bring great delight to our heart and enlighten our eyes. Father, we long for this. May You do this in our presence. May You bring about another revival. May You use us. May we see Christ's name glorified among our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. And oh, that You would do a work in the Bay Area and that we would see Your Word 
Go forth and use us. We know you don't need us, but would you use us and not pass us by? I ask in Jesus' name.